Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy. Our first scripture reading comes to us from Numbers, chapter 23, verses 8 and 9. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Here is a people living alone and not reckoning itself among the nations. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading comes from Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? Answer me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our third scripture reading comes from the book of John, chapter 17, verses 6 through 11. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me, I have given to them. And they have received them, and know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf. I am not asking on behalf of the world but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one, as we are one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before I begin my sermon this morning, I'd like to take a moment and thank all of the members of our music ministry here at First Pres, to Chris Urban, our organist and associate director of music, thank you for all that you do, to our choral scholars, Dan Richardson, Nick Pulikowski, and my wife, Megan, thank you for all that you do. And to Nick, thank you for all that you do with the Chancel Handbell Choir and with the Children's Choir. Thank you, Chancel Handbell Choir. Thank you, First Pres Children's Choir. It means a lot. To the adult choirs at First Pres, Chancel Choir, Chamber Singers, and Men's Chorus, thank you. Thank you for what you do. To our praise band, Compass, ever-growing, thank you for all that you do. To Bruce Blank, 
and the jazz that you bring to the church. Thank you. To Ron Connor and Nancy Johnson, thank you for working in our music library downstairs and keeping the choral music in order. To our instrumentalists, brass, strings, woodwinds, and the various pianists that offer their talents here, thank you. Thank you for all that you do. I'd like to start my sermon by making a slightly unusual confession. I am sometimes snobbish when it comes to music. There is a fine line between being a snob and being an aficionado in regards to music. I know, I walk it every day. I'd like to think I'm more in the aficionado camp, but the snobbery does show up every now and then, if I'm being honest. Part of what helps me with this is a sort of mantra I've been exploring for a little over a year now. I came to this mantra while looking back on my years here at First Prez. The mantra is simple, expand or limit. No matter the situation, whether it be one of musical programming, relationships, or much grander national worldwide problems, I ask myself, am I expanding on the issue or am I limiting possibilities? What I've discovered is that when I surrender to ways of growth and expansion, a healthy path forward usually follows. And when I give in to a fearful desire to limit, I am stuck. I cannot see the path forward. A large part of this directional shift in my thinking was due to a TED Talk given by Mark Ronson. Mark Ronson is a British-American musician and producer. He's the real deal, a talented and versatile musician that collaborates across a plethora of genres. And he does so earnestly and honestly. Mark was giving a TED Talk about sampling in music. Now, sampling is when an artist will take a pre-existing piece of music and use it in a track or song of their own. This is most commonly associated with rap or hip-hop music. This is where my snobbery begins to show up. I have a spotty relationship with hip-hop music. Some of it I find to be incredibly original and prophetic. Some of it I find to be downright awful. When I saw that Mark Ronson, a musician producer who I have a great deal of admiration towards, was giving a TED Talk on a subject that I have a complicated history with, I was very intrigued. I love to be challenged. Mark talked about how sampling was a way for artists to insert themselves into a narrative that they wanted to be a part of. The example that connected for me went back to the 1950s and 60s era of rock and roll and how those musicians, predominantly white, drew huge inspiration from Delta Blues 
and from black musicians. Singers like Elvis Presley, bands like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, they were listening to Robert Johnson, Muddy Waters, Bo Diddley, and Chuck Berry. They loved the Delta blues sound so much that they adapted and adopted it into their own musical language. They wanted to be a part of that narrative. This was a revolution to me. Sampling is when an artist takes any pre-existing piece of music and expands upon it. Remember, expand versus limit. Now I'm going to give you two examples of how this happens. The first, I'm simply going to play a little bit of guitar. See, some of the musicians that would have worked and collaborated with Elvis Presley, they would have heard a sound like this coming from the Delta Blues musicians. A very subdued, tired, heavy music, blues, full of soul. And the way that they would sample that, more times than not, is that they would just up the tempo, and you can hear this in a lot of Beach Boys music, for example, but it becomes this. Very simple, but very, very groundbreaking. The second example will appear on your screen. I first want you to listen to a little clip of Beethoven's Fjörlis. And now I'd like you to listen to a piece of music by the rap artist Nas. This is titled, I Can. This is sampling. My perspective had been changed. I thought I was being fair to the rap genre because there were certain artists and songs that I genuinely liked. But I was also particularly critical of those that sampled because it didn't seem original to me. I never considered sampling as a way to link yourself to a new or different narrative, as a way to be part of a story that you wanted to be a part of. I never considered that when I began playing guitar as a teenager, I was literally sampling from my guitar heroes. It's a little bit different than practicing a technique. It's almost subconscious. When I began singing, I was sampling from the singers that I listened to. When I practiced conducting, 
I will watch videos of Bernstein, or I will commit to memory every gesture that Ricardo Muti gives with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. We all sample. In every facet of life, we all sample. Our hymnal is full of sampling, classical samples, folk samples, African-American spiritual samples. Take the hymn, Be Still My Soul. The music comes from a tone poem written by John Sibelius. It's titled, Finlandia. Later, he reworked the tone poem into a standalone hymn with Finnish words added by the poet Veko Antero Koshkenimi. And today, it is the unofficial national anthem for Finland. Our Christian hymn version was, orig was originally written in German and later translated into English. Do you see the sampling here? Tone poem, Finnish hymn, German hymn, English hymn. What's the driving force behind this? It's wanting to be part of a new narrative. It's wanting to join narratives that previously had not been. The music is so beautiful, we want that music to be part of our narrative as well. Now at this moment, I want to let you all in on a secret. I have been ruminating about sharing this idea of sampling for quite some time. I had most of my major beats picked out several months ago. One of the major beats to my sermon involves some controversy, and it was always going to be controversial, but given the current climate, it may be even more so. So please hear my words with a high degree of care and observation, because I want to talk about how detrimental false narratives are. And I want to do so surrounding the topic of kneeling. For over 2,000 years, kneeling has been a symbol of prostration, submission, humility, reverence, and respect. For over 2,000 years, it has been widely documented in almost every religion around the world as a sacred gesture. That is a long narrative tied to the act of kneeling. That is not, however, the narrative being shared today. And I would like to push back on both modern contexts and call them out for what they are, false narratives. Kneeling is not an act of protest, and kneeling is also not an act of heresy or disrespect. I will elaborate more on that last point first. And the easiest example to turn to 
is, of course, Colin Kaepernick. So let's start there. When Colin Kaepernick wanted to bring attention to the issue that was on his heart, the issue of police brutality against people of color, he did so by sitting on the bench during the national anthem. Now, sitting has no history of reverence. It displays no sense of action or humility. It limits visibility rather than expanding it. And even though the First Amendment right guarantees his right to do so, retired Army Green Beret Nate Boyer wrote an open letter disagreeing with Kaepernick's decision. Colin responded, and the two met. They talked. They didn't scream at each other. They didn't try to see who was more patriotic and why. They didn't get upset and disrespect each other to such a degree that they retired to their laptops and began filling comment sections with hateful remarks. No, they talked. They shared their narratives. And it was actually the retired Army Green Beret, Nate Boyer, who suggested that kneeling would be more appropriate because of the history of the gesture. Colin agreed. And to be fair, to this day, Nate Boyer doesn't completely agree with his suggestion, but he firmly believes in Kaepernick's First Amendment right. In his own words, that's what he fought for. Now, this is the objective narrative to this story, but it's not the narrative we've been inundated with for over three years. This history between Colin and Nate, in conjunction with the history of kneeling, is why kneeling is not an act of heresy or disrespect. Now, <clears throat> some of you might find the earlier comment when I said that kneeling is not an act of protest, you might find that perplexing. Let me explain. We've seen various groups kneeling at recent protests around the country, but kneeling is not protesting. Kneeling ascribes reverence to the environment in which someone is protesting. It is an act of expansion. Let me repeat, kneeling ascribes reverence to the environment, to the situation in which someone is protesting. Kneeling does not make knighthood what it is, it elevates it, it expands on it. Kneeling is not what makes getting engaged so special. It elevates it, expands on it. It ascribes reverence to the environment, the situation. Kneeling and protesting are separate acts. They mean different things. 
If this sounds like verbal gobbledygook, let's look at our scripture from the book of John one more time. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours. And you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me, I have given to them, and they have received them, and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf. I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. That's a long and winded way to say, we are all connected. And the glory that lives in Jesus is in the people too. Now, Jesus is praying to God about the disciples, but he goes on to talk about those who believe in him through the word, the message. And he continues his prayer. The glory that you have given me, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one. I am them, and you in me, that they may become completely one. Unity. We can agree or disagree with someone like Colin Kaepernick kneeling during the national anthem. We are entitled to our opinions the same way he is entitled to his First Amendment rights. But to break away from each other, to create and perpetuate false narratives that turn people hostile against each other, full of rage, it goes against all of the unity that Jesus prayed for. For an example closer to home, think about the false narratives claimed against Alex for a fraction of his opinions. The tactics are the same. False narratives work against unity. And while we are struggling to make sense of the protests happening, understand that they are asking to be part of a larger narrative. For theirs to join others, yours, mine, it's akin to sampling with music. You could say that they're sampling Protestants, and Protestants sampled many others long before Martin Luther and others protested against the Roman Catholic Church. These protests were not all peaceful, far from it. And do you want to know why? False narratives. Now, let me be perfectly clear 
I am in no way advocating violence. I abhor violence. I'm trying to show you that it, it is the false narratives that are the reasons why protests don't stay peaceful. And this is true outside of protesting. As I stated earlier, false narratives work against unity. As Christians, we have a duty to recognize the false narratives in our lives and in the life of our church. If it's still challenging to sense the gravity or see the detriment that false narratives can present, I want to show you a picture that hangs in our very church. Friends, this has been a false narrative for over 1,500 years. White Jesus. You see, the church wanted to insert itself into the narrative of Jesus, but this way created a false narrative. Not only a false narrative, but false representation. A systemic way to keep the makeup of a church white and homogenous. Limiting potential rather than expanding on it. Now, how do we even begin to filter all of the false narratives being shouted from every corner of every land? I'm sure it's not wholly unique to me, but I offer my mantra. Viewing the situation through the lenses of expanding potential and that of limiting potential. Make note the intentional use of action behind each path. And one of the greatest ways to expand potential is to lift up the narratives of others, pleading for their narratives to be heard, to educate ourselves on these narratives, and ultimately to join them together. Unity, the very prayer Jesus prayed all those years ago, hoping that one day we would be one people. In Micah, T.C. read, Hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? Answer me. This is God challenging us. Dare I say it's God protesting against the people. For the people believe that God is wearying them. But the truth is that we weary each other. And what does the Lord require of us? If you continue in that scripture in Micah, it asks us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly 
with our God. The scripture shared today from John expands on that. It expands upon the potential. For now God, Jesus, and the people of earth are prayed for to be completely one, united. Walking humbly with our God now involves walking humbly with each other, acting justly and loving mercy with one another. I'm sharing this sermon with you on Music Appreciation Sunday because I believe music is a sacred place, always available for us to soften our hearts, to crack the reactive shields that we carry with us over our hearts that may have been hardened over time. Let us expand upon our potential and the potential of others so that we might unify our narratives. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.